Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 243 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Robbie Haynes. He's a Chicago-based bartender and entrepreneur who's done it all, from working behind legendary bars to founding spirits brands, and now an RTD project that's turning heads with a $150 bottled old-fashioned. But before we dive deep on Robbie's career and sample his latest creation, the Sunday's Finest Gold Fashioned, let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is, well, I mean, come on, it's kinda gotta be the old-fashioned, but this is well-trodden ground. If you're a regular listener, chances are you know how to make a pretty darn good old-fashioned cocktail. So instead of looking at the recipe or posting some famous cocktail bar's signature old-fashioned riff, I thought it might be fun instead to spit out a few ideas for you to play around with as we exit National Bourbon Heritage Month and lean into fall proper here in the U.S. I know I've got a few trips planned this fall that will have me spending some quality time in the great outdoors, and there's no better cocktail for travel than a lovingly batched, bottled, or flasked old-fashioned. So if you feel like you've been in a rut with this drink lately, or you simply want to try something new, here are a few of my favorite ways to take your fall old-fashions to the next level. First, when it comes to spirits, I'd like to point out that fall is one of the most underrated times of year to enjoy brandy, whether it's produced from grapes or apples. Of course, we all think of brandy as a winter staple for punches and eggnogs and alexanders, but think about it, fall is when apples and grapes are being harvested, so why not lean into the seasonality while you can still soak up a little of the sunshine responsible for that fruit? On the grape side, you've got your classic brandies and cognacs, of course, but have you tried making an Armagnac old-fashioned? Armagnac has its own production rules and geographic designations that make it a fascinating spirit to explore, and I think the old-fashioned is one of the perfect formats for that. In the realm of apples, my favorite fall spirit is aged apple brandy, particularly Calvados from the Normandy region of France. But if you're not in the market for an imported product, you can always pick up a bottle of Laird's Applejack from the great state of New Jersey here in the US. Calvados and Applejack are gonna have vastly different flavor profiles, but that's all the more reason to explore them in an old fashioned. My last spirit related suggestion is barrel aged gin. This is a category that's not super crazy popular right now. It came and went, replaced by pink gin and pandemic RTDs, but there are still some lovely aged gins available, especially in the craft space. So don't be afraid, grab a bottle, and even though there's juniper in them thar hills, I'd contend that you can make an excellent autumn spiced old fashioned using gin that has spent some time in wood. On the sweeteners and bitters front, autumn is also an excellent time to make custom syrups. Everybody's got pumpkin spice on the brain anyway, so why not make a cinnamon syrup or a nutty candied pecan syrup 
or even a freaking pumpkin syrup, man. Pumpkin seeds are delicious. You can get double duty out of these homemade products if you like to sweeten your coffee, for example, or if you like to bake. So be picky and intentional about your sugar source. Maybe lean away from the boring granulated stuff and don't be afraid to use your sweetener as a main character in your old fashioned rather than a plain old supporting actor. If you're looking for maybe less fall seasonal and more universally attractive flavored syrups, right now two flavors I'm super big on are molasses and coffee, both of which come in many different grades and varieties. Guess what? Both are really great in a fall old fashioned. And as for bitters, well, all I can say is that if you're running low, we're officially switched over to our new co-packer over at Embitterment Bitters, and I couldn't be happier with how our first large-scale batches turned out. So head over to modernbarcart.com today and pick up a bottle for your home bar, and hey, you know, maybe a bottle or a variety pack for holiday gifting purposes while you're at it. Of course, if all this talk of making your own old-fashioned like some kind of peasant is wholly unappealing to you, then I'd encourage you to check out the Sunday's finest gold fashioned, which is the pinnacle of gustatory and olfactory pleasure that we'll be discussing in this show. So now that you're loaded up with inspo that'll help you give everyone's favorite classic cocktail an autumnal facelift, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this truly wide-ranging conversation with bartender, spirits maker, and entrepreneur Robbie Haynes, some of the topics we discuss include Robbie's rise through the service industry ranks, beginning as a valet standing out in the cold on Chicago winter nights, then eventually manning bars like the legendary Violet Hour. What he learned about making cocktails, from carving ice in hotel pans on his first night as a barback, to the ways in which mixing a cocktail is like mixing and mastering a record in a recording studio. We also chat about his first spirits project, Apolog Liqueurs, which continues to capture rare and often savory flavors like celery root and aronia berry so that professional and home bartenders can jazz up their favorite cocktails. Then, of course, we sample and discuss the $150 Sunday's Finest Gold Fashioned, a product that can be said to truly define the luxury bottled cocktail category. Robbie and I talk about what that means, how it was created, and how to think about a $150 bottle spend relative to the other costs associated with a night out at your favorite cocktail bar. Along the way, we touch on what it means to nail the center of a cocktail, how bartenders learn their bar guests' love languages, why you might want to start thinking about cocktails as a spa experience, and much, much more. I want to be very clear about a couple things going into this conversation. First, since the explosion of RTDs at the beginning of the pandemic, I've actually instituted a formal no RTD policy on the show. We talked about them a few times in interesting ways, most notably with a great panel from the American Distilling Institute, but due to the fact that I'm almost quite literally waterboarded with requests to interview folks who own these brands, I reject 99% of everything that comes through my inbox. So when I connected with Robbie, I was upfront with him and said, listen, I wanna talk to you, but only if you let me play the part of the skeptic when it comes to spending $150 on a bottled cocktail. And he was more than willing to meet me where I was at. 
The other thing I want to acknowledge is that this episode's title is a little clickbaity. You're not paying $150 for a single old fashioned. You get seven to nine pours out of each bottle depending on your pour size. So I rarely had to don my skeptics robe in this show, mostly because if you do the math and look at how careful and tender Robbie and his team were about the execution of this product, in fact, how they continue to be as they launch new versions, it's actually pretty easy to appreciate what a premium bottled cocktail like the Sunday's finest gold fashioned can actually bring to the table. But I'm going to save all the details for the interview. So with that, please enjoy this truly enlightening conversation with spirits entrepreneur and cocktail whisperer, Robbie Haynes. Robbie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, same here. Before we get into tons of stuff, Chicago bar scene, liqueurs, and this $150 bottled old-fashioned here sitting next to me, uh, could you just introduce yourself in brief to our listeners? Who are you and what do you do? Sure. Um, Robert Haynes. Um, I do I wear a lot of hats, but for the last 15 years, my, my primary focus has been making delicious things for people to drink. Uh, and that's played out in a handful of venues and arenas from, you know, great cocktail bars like the Violet Hour to, um, my own space, Analog, Rest in Peace, to projects with Leatherby Distillers, Apolog Liqueurs, and uh, more recently, Sunday's Finest with the Gold Fashion. Fantastic. Yeah. So it seems like you've kind of got the on-premise, off-premise product maker, product packager. I can't wait to dig into to all that this, uh, that this packaging entailed. But I, I'd love if we could maybe just slow down and go through a few of those highlights in a little bit more detail before we get to the gold fashion, because based on my research for this conversation, I think we're going to be able to pull out some important threads about your style and about kind of the knowledge base that you've built up over the years that allowed you to put this product on shelves. Um, so could you just walk us through like your journey through the bar space first and foremost, and then we'll hop into uh, Apolog liqueurs and all that that entails. Sure. Um, my, my path to the bar was windy. I had moved to Chicago when I was 21 to play music. And the first job I got, I was hired off the street as a valet. I don't even think they checked to see if I had a valid driver's license. Through that job, which I, I would not recommend to anyone, especially living in Chicago, I managed to meet a lot of people that, you know, in my eyes were very fortunate to be working inside of an establishment in the dead of winter and managed to connect with um, a few folks that were running bar programs. They would step out in the middle of the night to make sure I wasn't freezing to death and and chat me up for a minute. And um, at that time, I was working at a, a nightclub called Sonotech in Chicago's West Town neighborhood. And the owners were in the process of opening up 
the Violet Hour. And a great guy, um, you know, that was bartending there said, hey, man, these guys are opening up a bar. You got to stop parking cars. Why don't you talk to them and see if you can come on as a bar back? And I said, absolutely. And managed to, you know, get my way in on the ground floor of the Violet Hour before they opened and was there day one as a bar back. And I don't think I really had any idea how um, impactful and, and lasting that experience would be. I, you know, was there when they were building the ice program from the ground up. Like day one, we walked in and they dumped a hotel pan of ice on the, an uncompleted bar top and gave us, you know, a hammer and a pick and said, make, ch- <laughs> make chunks. And for the first, you know, six months, a year, that's what I did every day, make ice. You know, um, it still beat parking cars. And um, I just slowly fell in love with it over time. I, I didn't have a lot of bar or culinary or hospitality experience at that point, but I really connected with the the level of creativity and thoughtfulness that went into the cocktails. I saw a lot of parallels there between like making art and making music. And I liked that, you know, it was the, the creative process condensed into a, a couple of minutes where you like can create something, conceptualize it, and then um, iterate on it. And, you know, you can walk away 30 minutes later with a, with a, a great cocktail filled with um, intent and, um, you know, kind of create a, a narrative there. So I, I, I count myself just really fortunate to ha- have been there at the beginning and had, you know, been in a position to learn from a lot of people that at that time knew a lot more than I did about spirits and cocktails, you know, notably like Toby Maloney, who was kind of the mastermind of that program. And I just tried to soak it all up, um, you know, as, as best as I could. Yeah. Uh, the Violet Hour is one of those establishments that even when you are not from Chicago, it's, it's a, it's a phrase that kind of mumbles its way out to other places where there are great things going on in the cocktail world. I'm fortunate enough to be in one of those places here in Washington, DC. Uh, but even if you're just a home enthusiast that, you know, the violet hour is, is sort of on that Olympus of places that over the past decade, decade and a half have really made an impact in the drink scene. Um, you mentioned a couple of things that I have to nibble on before we keep going here. Um, I, I, you know, the, obviously the connection between music and the beverage art that is a cocktail is, is an interesting one. I'm curious to know if you think that there is a particular art form that most people would classify as art to which the act of creating a cocktail best corresponds. Does that make any sense? Sure. Um, I, absolutely. And, and to me, it feels like mixing. 
mixing a record, if you will. Um, you know, in when I when I'm not making cocktails and when I was not behind the bar, I, I've spent a lot of time in um, recording studios, producing, engineering, mixing, mastering, and I see a lot. You know, the way I think of cocktails is is very much the same way I think about audio in that you have certain, you know, in, in an audio setting, you have certain instruments that occupy certain frequencies. And when they are, you know, brought together, or balanced in the right way, the, the whole um, becomes, you know, greater than the sum of all its, its parts. And mm. just, you know, I, I think about cocktails the same way. You have, you know, spirits, liqueurs, bitters, these things op- occupy certain frequencies on the palate, if you will. And, you know, making a good cocktail to me is about finding the, the, the balance between those ingredients and then featuring, featuring one to give it, you know, a certain identity or character. Um, and, you know, that the devil is really kind of in the details there. And that's, I think what drew me to cocktails in in particular is that, you know, you can start with a, a basic recipe, even say a daiquiri, two, three quarter, three quarter, um, something really simple. But there's a lot of nuance to even that simple recipe where, you know, I could make you a daiquiri and then I could have a conversation with the person sitting at the bar next to you and I could make you both the same cocktail, but within that recipe kind of tailor it ever so slightly to what I think you are going to enjoy the most, you know, Mm. that's the difference of the 16th of an ounce. Sure. Sure. And so that's, it's interesting that that we came to this part because when you first started describing the comparison between cocktails and mixing and mastering a record, what I was picturing was the waveform, right? We're both recording audio right now. You've got your recording set up on your end. I've got it on my end. Eventually, I'm going to download these files and I'm going to send them off to my audio editor who's going to sit there. She's going to pull up the waveform and she can like tug at that waveform to make it do certain things so that eventually when she compresses it into an MP3 file and sends it back to me, it's going to have the most, you know, hopefully pleasing outcome. And so I was, I was really sitting there thinking about like that process of tugging at the waveform. And it's like, it's very much the artist and the medium. And you can almost like when you're sitting there with the, the, with that waveform, you almost like the world can melt away. But what you're describing with making two different people in front of you, two different daiquiris, even though you're using the same basic formulation, to me, that almost makes me think of like the studio album versus the live album. Or, um, you know, when uh, a comic does their joke in one venue versus when they do it for their, you know, their live CD recording, for example, they might, they might have a, a slightly different take on it. And so to me, the, the the real interesting part of where we came to it, I think, is that you highlighted both the kind of like that real person and the medium kind of almost like uh, 
the scholar of one candle aspect of the art and then also sort of like the performative aspect of it. I don't, I don't know. Um, d- does that resonate yeah, at all with you? Absolutely. Um, you know, just like in music, you got to read the room and you might play the same, you know, if it's, if it's you and I sitting by a campfire under the stars, I might play the song one way. If you're in a room with a couple hundred people, you're going to deliver it a little different. Um, mm. That's an, you know, I would say that that's a skill that was developed over time. Um, you know, another really awesome thing about that Violet Hour experience is, is you get to do the same thing so many times. Um, and at first, like you're learning the steps, you're learning how to serve, how to interact with the guest. But by the, you know, the 10,000th cocktail, you know, you're exploring these like nuances that you wouldn't have really had the capacity to think about on day one. And, and one of those becomes like just reading people and, you know, having a genuine, a genuine desire to, to give them the absolute best experience possible and recognizing that, you know, that experience looks a little different for each person. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it, yeah, it, you know, there is a performative aspect to it, um, which I, I found really thrilling and it can go both ways. Like sometimes you would get someone that did not want to be easily pleased and you get really good at figuring out how to, you know, speak those people's love languages as well. Hmm. Love languages. I like that. Um, so you just mentioned that you kind of fell in love with the performative aspect of it. And then at a certain point, you decided you were going to try and bottle some flavors. So could you talk a little bit about the transition from your life behind a bar to when you launched Apolog Liqueurs? Yep. Um, so kind of happened in a couple of different phases. Uh, when I was still you know, full-time at the Violet Hour, I got a lot of um, kind of like positive reinforcement from the partners there to think outside of the box, you know, bring ideas to the table. What can we do? What can you do? That's interesting. And um, we had a really extensive bitters program, you know, making 15 to 20 different bitters in-house at any given, you know, season. And I really enjoyed making the bitters, you know, for the, same reason I enjoyed making the cocktails. And I just had an idea one night. I had been out having some drinks with a buddy. And we said, what if someone made a really well-made version of kind of what is quote-unquote considered like one of the world's more challenging liqueurs? In Chicago, there's this, you know, Malort is a is a thing. And if you're from Chicago, you you love it or hate it, but you, you know it. Um, and I, I don't know. I just was like, Oh man, I, I wonder if there's a, there's a way to make like a, you know, a, a boutique or, or craft version of this and started 
tinkering around. And that was like my, my, my first kind of foray into like the liqueur space. Um, just using, um, you know, high quality alcohol to extract the things that are interesting about roots, fruits, herbs, and barks. Um, fast forward a couple of years and I had moved on from the Violet Hour and opened a small cocktail bar in Logan Square called Analog. And in my time there, I started to just look at the back bar and see some opportunities for improvement, specifically in the liqueur space. Um, Historically, liqueurs are shrouded in mystery. They have, you know, ingredients that are not listed. There's um, kind of these like obscure origin stories. Um, And I love these products, things like, you know, chartreuse, fernet, um, more esoteric Amaro. And I, I saw kind of locally in the Midwest, there's some really interesting produce, things that don't maybe get enough recognition as I, I thought they should and realized that it was because they were either hard to source consistently or challenging to work with. Um, and so kind of combining those two ideas, thought, what if we release a line of liqueurs that features more interesting regional ingredients, things like persimmon, aronia berry, celery root, pawpaw. Um, let's be really thoughtful about the sourcing, um, where they're coming from, work directly with the farmers to, to get the ingredients, and then let's put everything that's in the bottle on the back of the bottle. Um, one, so there's like total transparency around the ingredients. But two, as a, as a bartender, you know, I'm always thinking about flavor affinities, what's going to pair well with certain ingredients. And having all the ingredients on the back of the bottle is just a, is a springboard for creativity. You know, if you're making a cocktail with Apologaronia and wondering what I should pair it with or what I should garnish it with, you can look on the back of the bottle and see that, oh, this has lavender in it, or this has a little bit of orange peel. And just knowing what's in it can help inform those decisions. So, you know, Apolog was, was ultimately designed to be a, a, a useful tool for bartenders um, to create, you know, interesting riffs on cocktails. Yeah, I, I like that. And can can you just tell us when roughly it was that you started playing with these ingredients like aronia, pawpaw, and also with the idea of transparency? When when was that in in space and time? Yep, I think we started working on it in twenty late twenty fifteen or early twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. launched at the end end of twenty sixteen, and yeah, it all started with persimmon and aronia berry, just mm. ingredients that had somehow gotten on our radar um, as, oh, these are like interesting. There's like enough name recognition around persimmon, but again, it's a, it's a, it's a fruit that some people are familiar with, most have heard of, but has like really great cocktail applicability. Um, and same thing with aronia berry. And then they, and they were also growing, you know, in our, in our, 
figurative backyard. Yeah, 2015, 2016, this all sort of maps on because, you know, when you were first getting into the bar scene and, you know, you, you had your, I guess you might call it apprenticeship with the hotel pan, you know, carving mm-hmm. chunks of, of clear ice, you know, that was at a time when cocktails, mixology, bartending more resembled alchemy than it did science. And that that's fair. I mean, you know, chartreuse, fernet, like all these mystical ingredients, it's possible to work with them and think about them in the mixing glass or in the shaker tins, like an alchemist considers, you know, the transformative process that they're trying to achieve. But as we progressed further, you know, right around that time, what are what are some other things that happen? You know, suddenly Brooklotti pops up and and starts, you know, doing interesting things with transparency around PPM and sourcing and all that. And and some of these ideas were just beginning to percolate up at the same time that you were launching Apolog. And so I think it's I, I just wanted to make that observation because the reason why I like to do this backstory with folks like yourself who have a lot of different touch points in the spirits and cocktail space is because over time, as people listen, they can sort of develop their own understanding of how things progressed, even if they weren't there to experience it. And I think that in the spirits and cocktail space, that's a useful thing to have in your back pocket. Again, even if you weren't necessarily in a major cocktail market when those things were going on. So, um, the other kind of question that I have for you, since we're talking about a bar called Analog and a spirits project called Apolog, is that's very rhymey. Is there any, is there any uh, any connection there? None. Uh, the, you know, <laughs> Analog, I think, was a nod to you know our the the collective group's you know passion and 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 history working in music and audio. Um, and you know, we added the, we chose the spelling with the G U E at the end because it looked a little nicer and, um, felt a little more upscale. Apolog, um, no, I did not come up with the name Apolog, but as soon as I saw it, I obviously felt comfortable and familiar with it and we decided to go with it. Um, you know, apologues imbued with probably a little more meaning. Apologue is a moral fable. Um, traditionally, it features, uh, you know, an animal as the protagonist or spirit guide. And oftentimes it's a fox. And mm. that's kind of the foundation that we kind of built the apologue brand on. And, you know, with apologue, I think we are trying to tell a, a kind of a, a purposeful, meaningful tale Um you know, with our business, the way we run it, um, and um, also with our with our product. Well, the interesting kind of etymological connection between those words is that they both contain the a reference to logos, which has a lot of different implications and meanings depending on the context. Generally, 
it's thought to mean like the word, right? Like literally, you know, whether it's a, a written or a spoken word, but it's also kind of imbued to mean knowledge. The ancient Stoics thought it had a very uh, sort of sacred implication. And of course, you know, you have the the apologue, the actual, you know, the conveying knowledge through this, uh, this moralistic fable type story. So uh, I, I think actually both of them are incredibly fitting considering what we were talking about uh, with the process of creating flavors and imbuing them, as you said, with intent and with narrative. So whether they were meant to rhyme or whether they were meant to be that close together or not, I think, I think it's pretty fitting. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. Yep, you've heard me singing their praises for the past year now, and to answer a question I'm frequently asked, yes, I still do a little happy dance when my monthly subscription shows up at my door on dry ice and in an insulated bag. I want to highlight a couple aspects of Near Country that normally take the backseat to their meat quality and their impeccable local sourcing, those being affordability and customization. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price of groceries lately, but the cost of meat, even the factory farm stuff, has been skyrocketing. But because Near Country keeps things local to the Mid-Atlantic, your meat doesn't have to travel far, and it doesn't change hands half a dozen times before it hits shelves, meaning you don't have to pay for all those markups from middlemen. Every time I do a price comparison between Near Country and the grocery store, I'm blown away by the quality that I'm getting relative to the cost. And when it comes to flexibility, I've never worked with a subscription service where I have so much control. Let's say, for example, that you've got something against pork chops. Every month, Adam and his team send around a survey that allows you to say, hey, I don't want pork chops this month. Or, I don't want pork chops ever again. Or, a more reasonable request, I'd love it if you could include pork chops in my delivery every month. Preferences change, diets change, and special requests and cuts are always on your mind at certain times of the year. And Near Country gets that. They bend over backwards to help meet your changing needs. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. And believe me, you'll be glad that you did. Now back to the show. Do you have a thing for savory tastes and flavors? I enjoy them. I have a thing for bitter. I love bitter things. Um, and I feel like savory is, is bitters kissing cousin. Apolog makes a celery root liqueur and that was born out of a single person's random dealer's choice bar order. Um, when we were working on Apolog and we had dialed in the Aronia and persimmon liqueurs, uh, I had picked up some shifts at a great neighborhood bar in Chicago called the Charleston. Awesome spot to hang out and have a have a drink but not nearly like the the back bar and and ingredient resources that a place like violet hour would have but still like known for making great cocktails and a young woman came in shortly after we opened on a friday and ordered a cocktail that was both refreshing and savory and very cool drink order and turned around 
looked at the back bar and, you know, obviously we had chartreuse. There were a couple of Amaro, but that just got kind of my gears turning that maybe there was an opportunity for a, a liqueur that was herbaceous and savory and celery root is an ingredient that I've always thought was cool. Um, it's earthy, it's mild, it's, it's kind of nutty and it takes really well to other spices and herbs. And so, you know, source some celery roots, sliced it on a deli slicer and, um, started macerating that with some other herbs, you know, tarragon, summer savory, fennel, dill, anise, and um, it turned out pretty delightful. So I, I do like savory, and I do think savory cocktails, especially um, when presented in a in a refreshing manner, have a, a lot of possibility. Yeah, the way I think about it is, it's almost like a it's almost like a motor because refreshing and savory in the cocktail space don't seem to inhabit like they they seem if not actually certainly close to mutually exclusive right so once you achieve something that's savory well it it's maybe not quite refreshing and and, and vice versa and when I think about that combination, when, when you, when you think about like, ah, I just got the savory and then, and then the, uh, the refreshing just kind of went out the window. It's almost like two electromagnets turning one on another. And it creates this sense of momentum or, uh, potential energy, uh, for what's going on in the glass. And, uh, one of, one of the ways that, I found really useful to talk about stuff like that is um, my friend Paul McDonald from Philadelphia refers to it as a nonlinear flavor experience. So something that's not just straightforward, like, you know, sweet, uh, you know, like, like a, like a old fashioned, which we'll talk about some of the interesting things you're doing there, but like, like the classic sweet, boozy, a little bitter, ah, you know, like that's, that's, a, a script that we all know and love, but when you get into some of those more kind of uh, maybe not clashy, but difficult to achieve balances, then I think you've got some of that potential energy in there. So I, I think this puts us in a good space to start talking about what happens when a pandemic hits and suddenly bottled cocktails become more on people's mind. So what made you transition from a single stream ingredient like a liqueur or a bitter to something that was a complete product in a box? Yep. So pandemic was an eye opener for us, you know, like probably most small businesses, you know, Apolog was very much geared towards on-premise cocktail bars and restaurants. And when those all closed over the course of a couple days in March 2020, um, we thought it was time to diversify, um, you know, partly out of survival. And the gold fashion was not our first foray into the RTD space. We partnered with a local restaurant group called One Off Hospitality to release their Big Star Margarita um, as a as a canned cocktail. That was an eye opener for us. You know, it was available 
is available. Whole Foods, Benny's, Foxtrot's, you know, all the great retailers in Chicago. Um, and it went really well. We saw that people, you know, though people weren't going out to bars and restaurants, people were really looking for opportunities together in small groups, um, whether it's in folks' backyards, barbecues, and even as the pandemic kind of wore on, you know, I think people got a little more comfortable congregating inside. So that just kind of got our eyes on the RTD space. Throughout that process of developing that, I, I drank, I tasted every single RTD I could find. And mm. similar to the liqueur space, what I, what I liked about that, I saw something similar in the RTD space in that there was a lot of room for improvement. And while a lot of brands were competing to, you know, margaritas, seltzers, these kind of like summer crushers, if you will. Um, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of said, all right, well, you know, that's there's so much money and and eyes on that part of of the segment let's focus, let's go the other way. Let's zig when everyone else is zag, zags and say, instead of, you know, thinking what is the most economical product we can make and sell the most units of, what is the actual best product that we can make? Um, and let's focus there and see where that puts us. And that's where the gold fashion was born. And it was us solving for, you know, what is the actual best cocktail that we could put in a bottle with the best ingredients that we can find? And what kind of experience can we create around that that will be not only unique, but maybe like needed, like emotionally needed by folks mm. at home, you know, who are, again, having these not able to go to their favorite bar or restaurant either because you know it's closed or um, proximity maybe they live outside or have moved outside of a, a, a dense urban population to somewhere more rural or maybe they have kids and they they can't go out on a Wednesday night to the violet hour or the Gibson or you know whatever great cocktail bars is near them so like what can we do for those folks that's gonna feel good and enriching and you know old-fashioned love um it's probably the cocktail that i've made the absolute most of in all sorts of different iterations and variations from like you know your classic with you know bourbon or rye and a dash of angostura to you know fully deconstructed to a, a shot of whiskey and a bitter soaked orange and a um, a uh, salt shaker full of demerara, where you shoot it like a tequila shot. So, like intimately familiar nice. with all the parts and pieces, and so we set our sights on making the best old fashioned possible, and then started sourcing, which was challenging. Um, you know, I think for us to be able to make this product and and look people confidently in the eye and say like this is. A, an amazing old fashioned. We had to have good whiskey, and we looked for a long time. Um, you know, the 
secondhand whiskey market's super competitive. Um, there's not a lot of stuff with um, a meaningful age statement on it floating around from reputable distilleries or makers. And that was kind of the biggest challenge early on was finding good juice. And once we finally got our hands on some stuff that we were, you know, would be proud to put in a bottle, then it was kind of game on. You know, the bitters, I felt were like the opportunity to tell a story or just create some, um, create some personality and give the cocktail character. So set to task sourcing, you know, kind of the world's finest ingredients from the country of origin. Saffron from Afghanistan, Tahitian vanilla beans, single estate Ecuadorian cacao, found uh, wild harvested gentian from the French Alps, uh, Seville orange peel from Seville, Spain. Um, and we made these really beautiful saffron bitters. And then to give it, you know, a little more character, we leaned into this split base concept, which is something that I've been toying with for a while. There's a, you know, I think there's historical precedent for some really cool split base cocktails. I guess the the Vucare is probably one of them. But I, I like this idea of blending, you know, bourbons and rye to kind of get the best of both worlds. And um, so we have like a, a punchy um, now six year bourbon. Uh, or sorry, six-year rye, and then a, a nine-year bourbon, and a 15-year bourbon. So like the the blend of those three, I think, makes for like a really compelling base that does what none of those would do on its own. And then started making it, and we're kind of scratching our heads. We're like, this is not, you know, for us to do this, it has to be as good or better than the cocktail you would get at your you know, the best craft cocktail bar in the closest major city. And immediately we were like, well, aroma, like that's the one thing that like craft cocktails, I'm sorry, ready to drink cocktails don't do is they, they don't engage all the senses in the same way a, a cocktail at a cocktail bar would. And that unlocked kind of the, the next level. You know, we were able to work with someone to create an orange zest atomizer that folks could, you know, then pour this gold fashion over ice, zest it with the orange zest atomizer, and now you have something that is um, organoleptic. Like it, you smell it before you taste it. You get the the aroma of like bright, fresh citrus, and then the cocktail itself um, is complements that, and it becomes like a full, like immersive cocktail experience. Mm. And so. I don't know. I, I think that's, I think the, the, the sourcing, the ingredients themselves set it apart. And then, you know, this, the ability to kind of engage like an, uh, an olfactory response is, is, you know, no one else is, is doing that yet. And, uh, I think that's one thing that people have really connected with and that we've heard from, you know, that to them, you know, they love the packaging, they love the taste, but having that extra element on it really sets it apart for a lot of people. For sure. For sure. Well, you, uh, you took us all the way through it there, which is, which is great. Um, I just realized that if I'm having a, a premium old fashioned, I I should use a premium glass. So I've got the Rauk heavy tumbler here from, uh, Norlon, one of the cool glass makers out there. Um, 
So I feel like we should do a little unboxing here. And for those of you who are just listening on the audio, I'd encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel so you can actually see this in video. But what we've got here is a really nice Art Deco style box. It's got, how would you describe the blue of this? It's not quite royal. It's got a little purple tinge. Yeah, it's not quite royal. Uh, I don't know. We looked at a lot of shades of blue and we're looking for something that felt like refined, luxurious, um, that also mm. looked really good with gold. Mm. Ah, yeah. So the, so it is maybe, I mean, let's take a cue. Maybe it's like a light violet color and, uh, we've got the, the gold foil there. Um, I'm sure these boxes weren't expensive at all, right? <laughs> so we lift up and we have almost like a, a globe style base here. And we've got around the neck of the bottle, we have a nice little pouch with a kind of like aftermarket stopper here. And it's got that nice gold foil on it, gold leaf. And, you know, feel looks and feels premium all the way around. So from an unboxing perspective, certainly, you know, chef's kiss. Um, and then, of course, you can see right here, we've got the atomizer with the essential orange oils as well. So for those of you watching the video, you kind of got it right here. And yeah, well, I'm sure these weren't annoying to label either. Nah, 5,000 <laughs> of them. Good times. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to give it a pour. We'll do our organoleptic nosing and tasting. I've got batch one here, 42.2 percent. And as I do that, uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, Sunday's finest? Where where does that come from? Is is it because on Sunday we all go to a place of worship and listen to a few apologues, and at that point after the apologues, we need a need an old fashioned? Um, yeah. So Sunday's finest, interesting. So we were working on names for the for the brand, and you know, historically, I do not drink at home. Almost never, uh, just because my day to day involves, you know, being around cocktails and and booze. And I was bartending, and so it was very rare that I would have a cocktail at home. And during the pandemic, um, it became a a real like joy and treat to you know celebrate the end of a, another weird, dark week where the world is just like crazy. I feel like there was so much stuff going on in the time that we were like developing this. Um, and so whenever I made it to Sunday, I would be like, all right, I'm having a cocktail. So Sundays kind of became like significant to me for that. And then I also like the connotation that Sunday's finest is like the good stuff. You know, it's like if you're, if you're going out um, and, you know, you, you put on like your nice, nice shirt, um, your nice shoes and, and you got on your Sunday's finest and it just felt really appropriate for this type of, of cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's a, uh, it's a really tight brand. It's obviously just beautiful. As I mentioned, unboxing from start to finish. And I think that's important too, because, you know, going back to the initial impulse, which was to zag when everybody else zigged and to make something that is as you know, what we might refer to as premium as you can, um, 
you have to hit those notes because if you don't, it falls flat. It's easier to compare with everything else that's out there. So, I mean, let's get real here. The real litmus test for this is going to be this this orange essential oil here. So I'm going to try and execute it without getting it all over my camera lens, but I'm going to try and do it by the camera lens so that we actually get a little shot here. Bam. Look at that. Wow. I like it. One pump to prime and then it's ready to go. So, and you're right. I mean, like totally different, totally different drink. As soon as that, as soon as the essential oils hit it, it's as if someone had just lovingly expressed an orange peel over the top. Um, yeah. So let's taste here. And the rye immediately hits, you know, you've got a little bit of earthiness, um, and you don't, you don't lose the kind of the fruitier notes from the bourbon. Those are there, man. If I was just, if I was just sipping, uh, sipping that sans sugar and sans essential oils, it would be a perfectly lovely experience on its own. Yeah. The, the bourbon blend on its own is pretty great. I've been, I set a little bit aside of that. Um, so when we were corresponding via email, I had to kind of come clean with you and say, listen, I'm not a huge RTD fan when it comes to the podcast because we're inundated with hard seltzer and you know all of the other RTD projects that have been crawling out of the woodwork these days. So I've, I've pretty much had to make a blanket policy against featuring it. But I said, Hey, if you're okay with me playing the devil, the devil's advocate or being the skeptic in this context and saying, really $150 for a bottled cocktail. Um, you know, I I kind of mentioned that that's the approach that I was going to be taking here. And I haven't really been taking that approach thus far, been trying to, you know, kind of get to know you a little bit, but I mean, what do you say to people when they ask that question of like, really $150? Like I can get this bottle old fashioned over here for like 20 bucks. It's got sure. the same amount of juice in it as yours. And let's face it. You're not going to magically appear when I open this bottle and mix it and express that orange peel for me. So if you're not going to be the magic cocktail genie, then why am I bothering to pay almost 10 times the amount when I could just buy the $20 version? Sure. Great question. And uh, I I think there's a a few points. One, the less sexy is is just kind of like the, the general kind of economic breakdown, right? So you're getting 10 to 12 full strength cocktails per bottle. If you go to a great cocktail bar and you say, give me your, give me your old fashioned, you know, everyone's going to have it household fashion. That old fashioned is probably going to cost you depending on where you are, you know, 14 to $18 depending, you know, maybe more expensive in New York. That cocktail is probably not going to have nine year or 15 year bourbon in it unlikely. So there's that. There's also the, the bitters again, like 
saffron is the world's most expensive spice. Um, and we really, we spared no expense in, in bringing kind of the world's best ingredients together, blending them thoughtfully, tasting them, adjusting, taste, tweak, taste, tweak, really trying to nail um, the, the quote-unquote like center of this cocktail. And I guess that, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about recently is there's also like, if you go to a cocktail bar, right, and you're paying X dollars for cocktails, there's a lot of other hidden costs. You got to get there. You got to take an Uber back. You got to sit at the bar. You got to wait for your cocktail, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. You're probably going to have another drink. You might have to order food. This stuff is all great. Like I love doing that stuff, but I think there's also like, and kind of an in it's hard to put a number on like what being able to take that experience outside of those four walls and bring it into your own home, a loved one's home, a holiday event. Now you can have that experience when and where you want and with whom you want. And that to me is kind of like, as I get a little relatively older, you know, I have a child, I don't get to go out much, you know, being able to have this kind of quality cocktail bar experience um, in the comfort of, of my home or like at my convenience when I, when I can, to me is like kind of invaluable. And that's what we've heard from a lot of folks. Like, you know, we tried to talk to as many people as possible that ordered batch one. And, you know, the, the story is pretty similar for, for, for a lot of folks. It's like, you know, I used to love to go out. And when I had this at home, like, you know, it, it totally took me and my partner back. And we were able to have this, like, really amazing, like, hosp- like first-class hospitality-style experience which is something that we have just been, you know, missing. And we were able to do it and at home. I think it shakes out. And then I think also, you know, people taste it and, you know, the, the, the feedback is, is kind of overwhelmingly um, positive. It's a damn fine old-fashioned. Uh, that, is, that is 100% accurate. One of the things that I'm tracing through our conversation here is that it seems like no matter where you are in the spirits and cocktail space, that you eventually find yourself engaged in a problem solving or almost like a, you might call it like a a mashup between a puzzle and an art project of trying to make people feel good. And I know that that is a very generic and blunt way to phrase it. But I mean, earlier you were talking about love languages and then you were talking, you know, about when the pandemic hit, trying to create products that were emotion or experiences that were emotionally needed, right? These are the, these are phrases and words from someone who, isn't just a flavor technician, but who's engaged in a slightly more 
interpersonal project. I, I don't I don't know. To me, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but to me, it seems like that's your specific brand of hospitality almost that I'm kind of pulling out of this. Yeah, I think that cocktails are unique in, in, in a couple of ways. You know, drinking at large can go a lot of different ways, right? You know, there's a big difference between, you know, taking shots of tequila and drinking high life or having a white claw at the lake or the beach, you know, all things that are, are great and I have done and have enjoyed them. But like a cocktail, I feel like a good cocktail can do a, a few things. One, if you're enjoying it by yourself and it's well-made, like it's almost like going to a spa. Like you've had a long, a long day, you know, good or bad, maybe you're celebrating or maybe it's just been like a, a rough day or week. Having a really well-made cocktail can make you feel cared for. It allows you to not disassociate, but it, it can be a bit of a, a, a an excursion. It can be like transformative. It can take you somewhere. Um, and a cocktail can also tell a story like... Um, the, the the ingredients in the bitters, the, the spirits used, the liqueurs, like you can create a sense of time and place. So I think one, a cocktail can do that for just one person. And that can be like a really valuable experience. Um, lately, I, I've I found cocktails as a great way to have a, a, to connect with someone, whether it's your partner, whether it's a buddy, whether it's a family member, um, you know, having a sharing a cocktail with someone kind of cues up these like memorable and, and meaningful experiences. Uh, and, and the cocktail kind of becomes a, a, a vehicle for that. It gives you something to talk about. It gives you guys both something to enjoy. And then if it's hitting in all the right spots, then you can kind of like focus on each other and connect and it just becomes like this like beautiful backdrop to whatever it is you're doing. So I think there's like the, there's a, there's a beauty and, and power to the, to a, a cocktail shared um, amongst folks that I haven't found with a lot of other things, you know, and yeah, it's, if you have 10 or 12 cocktails, yes, you you might have a, a a notable night, but might not remember it. But I feel like a, a couple of cocktails is 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 really nice from time to time, and you know it makes the time in between a little easier too. Sure, and I, I mean ultimately, what I'm glad we were able to do here is to move past the sticker shock that I first experienced when you popped into my inbox and said, "Hey, can we chat?" and I think for me, what you just described, all of those, what we might call tangible intangibles, right? They're, they're intangible things like context and connection and transformation, uh, <laughs> care. Those are intangibles, but what's kind of evoking them is the very tangible ingredients in this bottle. Um, so I think, I, I think that it makes sense, maybe not for everyone's pocketbook, maybe it's not for everyone's budget, but 
you know, I riddled out the math on my own. I, you know, calculated the number of barrels that, you know, roughly you were using and the number of bottles you were getting and how much you would pay for, you know, a three ounce pour of an old fashioned at a bar. And yeah, if, if you're paying anywhere from 14 to $16 a drink and then tipping, you know, 20% like you should as a good human being, then you're going to be paying pretty much exactly precisely on the nose what the cost per pour is in this bottle. So really you don't have an excuse to kind of cry foul at the price point here if you go out and if you enjoy cocktails like that. And so I think that kind of mathy sterile analysis combined with all of the backdrop and all the context that you provided with this really helps me to understand where this fits in to the cocktail landscape and what makes it unique. So I'm kind of moral of the story is I'm glad that we were able to do this, even though I kind of reserved the right initially to be like, eh, don't, don't, uh, don't expect me to, uh, to give you an, an easy, an easy time here. I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I remember, let me tell you about the first real cocktail I had. Yeah, please. Maybe it's maybe this is somewhat similar. So I worked at the Violet Hour for a month. Long nights. Probably not eating. Maybe, you know, not drinking any water. At that time it was probably, you know, five hour energies and Red Bulls and some like disgusting parliament lights uh was getting me through the shift. But I'd seen these cocktails going out. And at the time, you know, I think when we opened, cocktails were 11 bucks. Now that seems like a steal. At the time, people were like, oh my God, $11 for a cocktail? Sure. You know, and I remember the one night at the end of a shift, you know, I'd seen all these drinks go out. Every, and I'm like, you know, I don't get it. At the time, I'm like, $11 for a cocktail it does seem kind of high. And... One of the bartenders was like, hey, do you guys want a cocktail? I said, yes, please. Would love to have one. And um, this guy, Michael, made me a, a whiskey smash. And it blew my mind. I had never experienced anything like that. It was a toy. It just changed the whole paradigm of like what I thought a, a drink or cocktail could be. It engaged my, my palate in ways that I didn't know were possible. It tasted, you know, it was it was unlike anything I'd ever had. And, you know, I haven't, since then, I haven't, I don't know that I've had a lot of cocktails that were that many leaps and bounds beyond my previous experience. That one was so far beyond anything that I'd, I'd had at that time. You know, might as well have been in outer space. And, definitely worth 11 bucks, you know, <laughs> and so I, I think that's it. Like I, you know, I, I, I my hope is that people taste this cocktail and, and they, they have it, you know, again, and, um, in a, in a situation that feels great to them. And, and then I do think the, the value is, is certainly, is certainly there. And yeah, you could go to X, very nice cocktail bar and have a, a great drink, but you could also have the gold fashion, which is arguably just as good. 
in your pajamas on the couch watching Gilmore Girls with your <laughs> wife, boyfriend, partner, whatever, while eating, uh, you know, some Vosges chocolate. And that's pretty nice too. Sure. Sure. Well, Robbie, this has been great. Uh, I have really enjoyed kind of exploring your career, your evolution, and obviously sampling this really wonderful product. A couple things before we wrap up here. Uh, I'm hoping that you can just share with our listeners and our viewers the best way that they can pick up a gold fashioned wherever they happen to be. Most of them are here in the US. And then um, after that, I mean, the hanging question is what's next? So why don't you take us into question one and then we'll wrap up with uh, maybe a look into the future. Yep. Um, so, you know, you go to www.sundaysfinest.com and you can order um, a, a bottle of gold fashioned and it will come to your door. Uh, 20, which kind of goes right into what's next. So the 2021 blend is done. 2022 blend comes out uh, October. Um, I think nice. we're going to launch first first or second week of October. And, um, you know, that'll have 15-year bourbon, nine-year bourbon, six-year rye. We've made some really nice updates to the box and packaging so if you like the way this looks, the next one is even better. We've made the atomizer bigger. Um, you know, we heard from a lot of folks that they love the orange zest atomizer. Can we get more? Um, yes, we hear you. And we have made it the atomizer bigger. And yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to is, is getting this year's blend blended i'm gonna go in next week and i'll be at the distillery for you know seven or eight days making a giant old-fashioned um in the, <laughs> the same way i would make a a, a single serving old-fashioned um just bigger bigger volume but gonna make it taste it spend some time with it adjust it and um once it's once it's perfect we'll we'll send it out i'm just picturing uh newman at the end of the muffin stumps episode where he where he rolls in in the in the firebird and he, he just takes out two glasses and says gonna need gonna need a bunch of milk here and just starts eating uh i feel like i just imagine you walking into the distillery with like two regular mixing glasses and a couple of bar a couple of not just bar <laughs> spoons the red tip bar spoons just like all right guys i'm here where's the ice maker yeah, um go. but but uh, it, I'm, I'm guessing that if uh, if we visit the website, there's a mailing list we can jump on to know when that update hits, or should we follow you on social media? Um, you can follow us on social. Um, that's at Sunday's Finest. And um, there is a, a mailing list to sign up on the website. So you can go to that and you know be in the know on exactly when this next batch is dropping. And obviously, this is a limited project. Uh, so the emphasis here is there's only going to be so many bottles. This isn't going to stick around all year, clearly. So better to be on that mailing list and have the opportunity to get your hands on a bottle before they're gone. Um, so, Robbie, is there anything that we missed here? Any Anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? 
I, I'm feeling pretty good about it, man. Uh, I, I really enjoy working on this, um, you know, I, and, you know, not much has changed. You know, I'm still, you know, one thing at the Violet Hour was every single cocktail I would try to make a little bit better than the last one. And, you know, some 15 odd years later, still here doing the same thing, just on a larger scale. So I'm um, excited to be here and hopefully folks will try the gold fashion and, and love it and, you know, keep an eye out for the release the following year. We're going to do 3,000 bottles um, this year. So imagine those awesome. go through the holiday season. Beautiful. I, I think that's precisely the idea. Uh, well, we will have links to everything we mentioned over on the show notes page. Maybe I'll also throw up a link to my interview with Tremaine Atkinson from CH Distillers talking about Malort. Maybe I'll link to some of our RTD stuff that we've done in the past, back when this whole craze was just beginning. But uh, you can find that over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And Robbie, man, thank you for giving me the opportunity to sample the gold fashioned and most importantly thanks for being a guest here on the modern bar cart podcast thanks for having me Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Spirits and Cocktail Insights, courtesy of Robbie Haynes, creator of the Sunday's Finest Gold Fashioned, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.